Hello, I'm Sarah Vine, and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Mail Plus. I'm joined this week, as every week, by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones. Coming up on today's show, we've got Holly I Smale. normally say hello. Oh, sorry. Okay, yeah. <laughs> say hello. I normally say, say hello. All right, do it. Okay, hello. Hello. Thank Hi. you. how are you? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Now you can carry on with the reading. No, no, it's, I'm in a bit of a hurry because I'm having an eye operation I know you later. are having an eye operation. And I'm quite nervous about it. Um, um, I hope you're having some extra tweakments at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd love to ask the man to do it. Yes. Can you quickly give me a facelift while you're doing yes. my eye operation? Or an eyebrow Or lift. something, anyway, just something. Or something. Or yes, a... I'm having a thing done. Yeah, or you you could have the lobes done. My earlobes? Apparently, my, that's... I, my earlobes are fine. Apparently, what are that's the new about? thing. I don't have anything wrong with Botox my Botox in the earlobes. Okay, well, all right, fine. Yeah. I mean, he's just literally taking something out of my eye that's oh, not okay. meant to be there. Okay, okay. Well, um, so there'll be no dramatic difference next week. <laughs> Well, I said that I'll probably have stitches. Oh, good. And so no, eyes. I don't mean good. I mean, <laughs> I mean, sorry. <laughs> now you can carry on with the rest of it. Off you go. Oh, okay. Finish it so that sorry. you can go and have your eye operation. Yes. Okay. Fine. <laughs> Coming up on today's show, Holly Smale, the author of the multi-million selling Geek Girl series of books, joins us to explain how at 39 she received a diagnosis that explained why she had felt different her entire life. I felt different my entire life, but I don't suppose there's any Mm. diagnosis for me. No. 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 Plus, (laughs) this week, Kate Winslet used her BAFTA acceptance speech to highlight the dangers that social media represents to young people. We are going to be talking to an expert about the perils of social media addiction. That was very good, that film. It's called I Am Ruth. I Am Ruth. Mm. And it's with her daughter, Mia Threepleton. It's a bit lovey, but Is it? it's, it's actually worth watching just because it's sort of, well, if you've got a teenager on social media, it does resonate. Well, I it's certainly a bit grim. have one of those. Yes, <laughs> yes. exactly. Yeah. Anyway, our first guest this week is Holly Smale. Holly is the best-selling author of the Geek Girl series, which my daughter loves. So and did who, mine. Yeah, and whose latest book, The Cassandra Complex, has just been released to great acclaim. At the age of 39, Holly was diagnosed with autism and says that from that point on, everything started to make sense, including the characters in her own books. She joins us now. Hi, Holly. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm interested to know how you ended up getting a diagnosis in the first place. Yeah, so I think it kind of came to a head during lockdown, to be honest. By that point, I was completely exhausted and just unwell, basically, mentally, I think. And having time on my own, I began to feel quite relieved that I wasn't having to deal with all the stuff that I normally have to deal with. And then ironically, you know, as all good stories start with a very weird beginning, I was talking to a guy on a dating app for about a day. And I made an, an inappropriate joke, which I can see now as inappropriate. <laughs> but at the time, I thought I was trying to alleviate attention that I had sensed. Mm. And uh, he took it very, very poorly and got very angry and oh. started basically sending me text after text after text, calling me a lot of quite personal names. He looked me yeah, up on I Google. Can I just ask, what was the joke? joke yes, what, what was, what, the, what was so bad, bad could this joke have been? <laughs> Without going into too much detail, he is like quite a known person, so I don't want to kind of oh, okay, essentially get but, get done. But yeah, I made but a joke. Were you about... just sort of belittling his masculinity or something? Was it just banter? Yes. No, um, he had done something that he wasn't particularly proud of, and I had brought it up after he told me to Google him, and I thought I was trying to get the elephant out of the room, if that, if okay. that makes sense. Oh, I see. Um, okay. Fair enough. And he didn't know why I had brought it up. So I apologised profusely, but he sort of went into uh, quite a long rage. And he started saying things about me, which I had been said a lot over my life, things that, you know, there was something wrong with me. I was clearly broken. This is why I was alone. And yeah, it was it was incredibly personal. Gosh. 
for a very long time and for, for about five hours and I just kind of went into a massive meltdown to the point where I blacked out mm. I was not okay when my emotions become too big it sort of sends my brain into mm. shutdown mode and when I came out of that I started to think okay maybe I do need to do some research maybe he's right maybe there is something quote wrong with me and mm. that's kind of what pushed me into starting to google autism in women and girls specifically rather than wow. just autism. So did you go and see a specialist or did you just Google yourself? <laughs> so I spent a day Googling myself, realised that I recognised myself everywhere. And, and to be frank, it mm. wasn't a surprise. The word had come up over and over and over again, because obviously I wrote Geek Girl. Mm. And so mm. for a decade, I had had people coming up to me and given that Harriet is me as a teenager, mm. I'd had people mm. coming up to me and saying, you're autistic, right? And I'm like, what? No. <laughs> Holly, can I just ask, when you were writing Geek Girl, which yes. is brilliant... Thank Did you, you realise that you were describing the symptoms of autism mm. or was that just a shock to you afterwards when you realised that that's what you had written? Yeah, it was a surprise because what I was trying to do was focus on being honest about my experience as a teenager and all the things I struggled mm. with on a daily basis because I wasn't finding it anywhere in the books that I was looking at and I hadn't found it when I was a kid either. So my focus was on being very specific and very honest about the things that I found difficult and the things I was good at, all kind of different areas. And obviously, because it was very much me, I didn't know that there was a word for the things I was trying to describe. So ironically, um, I remember the National Autistic Society actually reached out to me at one point and said, hey, did you know that Harriet Manners reads as autistic? She has all mm. of the diagnostic criteria. And I was like, how dare you? She's based on me. And there was just this awkward silence <laughs> where, you know, I'm not great at reading between the lines. So um, <laughs> it was, yeah. And, and ironically, I've, you know, the word has been kind of brought up over and over and over again. And even when I was little, when I was a child, it was being kind of subtly brought up by the adults, mm. but without actually using the word. Mm. So they'd say things like, you're wired differently. My GP, when I was 17, said, you're wired differently. And it's going to make life incredibly difficult, but also incredibly beautiful. And I didn't understand what he was saying. I just mm. kind of said, oh, well, that's useless. Thanks for no help whatsoever. So the word had been brought up over and over and over again. Um, so obviously, once I Googled myself and realized that I was identifying with everything I was reading, I rang a GP and it was during lockdown. There were no kind of in-person meetings. And I said, hi, I'd like to know what the process is for an adult autism assessment. And she said, what? No, you're 39. There's no way that you're autistic. That would have been picked up at school. I kind of went, but I think I am. And it wasn't. <laughs> and she said, no, no, that's not the sort of thing we'll do. And so that was it. That was the NHS process over for me. And I was so emotional anyway. And my head was all over the place. I thought I cannot start this process of finding out whether I'm right. And this is actually what it is by fighting the NHS at the mm. first stage. So I ended up, <laughs> like, I just didn't have the energy in me anymore, to be honest. So I went and got a private clinical assessment. And obviously, there's mm -hmm. been a lot of stuff in the news over the last few days about private assessments. I can't speak to anything about ADHD, but I know that with mine, it was about 15 hours of written assessment and then about mm. six hours in face-to-face. -face. So it was painfully in-depth, very emotional and exhausting. Mm. And yeah, there was no doubt at all. But presumably quite <laughs> cathartic. Mm. And also, I'm quite interested to know, what was it that the adults were responding to when you were young that made them think that you were autistic? 
I mean, I was just a very clearly autistic child from the very beginning. I mean, my first day of nursery school, which I remember very clearly because along with a lot of other autistic people, I have an incredibly strong long-term memory, terrible short-term. <laughs> but I, I remember my first day of nursery school and I remember sitting in the corner of the nursery facing a wall in the dark, mm. teaching myself how to read while all the other children were playing outside in the sunshine. And when my mum came to get me, she was like, you know, is she okay? And the teacher just sort of said, it's okay. She's just a bit different. She's a different child and she'll go her own mm. way. Mm. It was everything about me. I was having meltdowns in supermarkets. I was climbing into cupboards and under tables because mm. everything was too overwhelming. I struggled mm. to communicate with the other children. I didn't have any friends. Mm. I just would show mm. them my box of rocks and try and talk to them about it. And they would just move really far away. <laughs> you know, every diagnostic trait I displayed from the age of, you know, dot, mm. basically. But because it's really only been around, you know, I mean, historically, it was a male. Um, but also, a male. also people tend to think of autism. I mean, what people don't maybe think is that autism is a sliding scale. I mean, you can be very functional. It doesn't have to be Rain Man, which is, you know, I suppose no. what most people think. But a common misconception is that the autism spectrum is linear, so that you go mm. from mild to severe. And that's not what it is. It's a circle. So we're all have strengths and weaknesses in different yeah. areas. How has the diagnosis helped you? Has it improved everything? Has it made it easier? Yes. Yeah. I mean, being diagnosed has basically alleviated a lot of the shame and embarrassment and guilt about being myself. Mm. I've spent my entire life aware that I was different and trying to mask mm. it, trying to cover it up, trying to make sure that no one else noticed and they inevitably did. And that is exhausting on a decades long basis. Mm. So for me, the diagnosis has made it kind of easier for me to accept that I am different and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a different way of being and it's as mm. valuable as any other way of being. It makes it easier just to try and be myself on a daily basis rather than trying to fit myself into a shape that I was never supposed to fit. How does it affect your writing, do you think? Well, on, on many levels, it doesn't affect it because I've always written trying to be honest. And, yeah. you know, honesty is honesty, regardless of whether it has a word attached to it. But I think that now that I know more about myself, there's less hiding, there's less masking mm. um, than there perhaps was otherwise. So it's allowed me to be even more honest, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the books are fantastic. And also they sort of, in a funny kind of a way, they normalise the... The box of rocks. The, the box of rocks, <laughs> yeah. you know. <laughs> and also the idea that girls can be autistic too, because as you said earlier, it tends to be ascribed mostly to boys. Because yes. Because they tend to be the sort of people who collect rocks and flies. And yes, like yes, that. yes. Um, I remember when I was a child, I struggled at school. I used to spend all my time sitting in a tree reading a book. Oh, yes, you did. <laughs> yeah, and, and, yes. The, and the teachers were always saying to my parents, there's something wrong with her. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I found children really stressful because they were so noisy. Mm. They made so mm. much noise and they were always shouting all at once. It would make my head hurt. That's why I used to go and sit in a tree because it seemed like the safest place to be. Do you think we're more forgiving, <laughs> Holly, now of people who are sort of... Yes, a bit different. A bit like, different, you know, yes. Not, not your usual. Do you think it's easier now than it was when you were little? I think it's getting there very slowly. I think there's still some way to go because... You know, or even though you can talk about it and you can write about it on a daily mm. basis, you're still kind of a lot of people still find you weird. They still move away from you. Mm. I still struggle to form relationships, whether it's romantic mm. or otherwise. So I think there is a growing understanding and a growing empathy towards the fact that we are all different. And I think that's what's always at present in my mind when I'm writing is it's less, you know, I want to show what this is specifically like, but more, we all have different brains. We are all completely different people and that's okay. It's I not agree. A bad thing. I think that's right. But also I think that it's important to understand that having autism 
is not an illness mm. in the same way that having ADHD, it's just the way your brain works. It doesn't mm. mean that you're wrong or sick. My worry about the whole thing is that we end up medicalizing people who have slightly different brains and trying to make them all the same as, you know. Well, the real problem is the education system is so binary. Exactly. You know, I have a son who has ADHD and it's it's a... He can't operate unless he's on medication. No. That's and the it's simple very difficult. Truth. It's because, very, very difficult because the education torn. system won't let him yeah. be himself. A balloon is what he wants to be, yeah, really. Well, I, well, don't we all want to be a balloon? Looking <laughs> <laughs> around in the um, ether. But there isn't any medication for autism, is there? No. Just no so what are you, what are you supposed to do after you've had a diagnosis? Yes, do, you, do you go into therapy? I mean, what happens? Or you just go, thanks very much and... Walk out of the thing, you tick and toddle off, exactly. Yeah, you're, you're kind of left to your own devices, to be honest. Right. Um, there is no medication. There's nothing you can do, really. I mean, I'd already been in therapy for five years before I got my diagnosis. So right. I had worked on quite a lot of the stuff that, you know, that I could control, not the stuff mm. I can't. And I know I found myself wishing specifically for just something that could just turn the world down a little bit. <laughs> mm. But, you know, essentially there are great strengths that come. And I think, you know, I agree completely this medicalization of different brains that, you know, mm. there is a move now to move away from that. Yeah, I think that's true. I think we should just accept that some people can't spell because they're dyslexic mm. like me yeah. or that they're, I find that, um, do you have AirPods? Yeah, they're in right now. <laughs> noise cancelling AirPods. Yes. I find noise cancelling AirPods have been a game changer because I have this real problem with noise and sound and people. Really? So when I'm on the tube and stuff, if I put my noise cancelling AirPods in, suddenly the world is fine. It's like that is... Yeah. So you're a bit more zen. Well, it's because you said earlier, Holly, about turning the volume down on the world. Mm. That's yeah. what they do. Mm. Do you I use agree. them for that? All the time. I'm constantly in a bubble. I also yeah. have ones that if I don't want to play music, I can just shove in there and then they just kind of make everything about, you know, a little bit quieter. Well, it also means that no one talks to you, which is my daughter yes. uses them on the tube. I said, so are you listening to music? But no, it just means no one speaks to me. Oh, I wish. <laughs> like, People talk to me anyway. And it's so frustrating. I'm like, I'm pointing at my ears like you can see that I'm not going to be talking yeah. to you. Well, they're, Why? they're surely fans, Holly. Fans. You need a T-shirt sorry. that says, don't speak to me, I'm autistic. Yeah. 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 So, so tell us about the Cassandra Complex, your latest book. I'm dying to hear about it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so when I got the diagnosis, I've obviously written for children for a decade and mm. I love doing it. I love writing for teens. But I'd always wanted to write an adult book. And I think I, there was a part of me that was worried that because I am a slightly different kind of adult, I don't necessarily feel like a proper adult in my own head. And when I got the diagnosis through, it kind of almost liberated me to go, okay, actually, I'm just going to write my experience. And if it's slightly different, then that's okay. And so, yeah, Cassie is a woman who on the third worst day of her life discovers that she has the ability to time travel and she uses it to try and undo the mistakes that she's made and fix the life that she seems to have completely screwed up. I loved writing it. Sorry, she doesn't use it to go back in time and buy a winning lottery ticket, which is obviously what I would do. <laughs> well, that is part of the book, yeah. So that's exactly... No, I agree. I have no and, idea well, you were so basic, Sarah. Well, go Sarah. back to 1965 <laughs> and buy stocks in Apple. <laughs> yeah. I no. know. What would you do? It's such a good <laughs> conceit, though, isn't it? It's really fun. Yeah. I just wanted to... I mean, it, that does come up, and it's a joke in the book that she doesn't use it for mm. anything particularly impressive until the end. Yes. So, But it was a great way of showing what the autistic brain is like a lot of the time, because it's looping, and it's repeating, mm. and it's hyper-focusing. But it was mm. also just this great way to explore how we, all of us, regardless of whether we're autistic or not, we care about the connections we make with the people around us. Mm. We care mm. about forming those relationships and finding that kind of empathy and that kindness in each other. 
And so it just felt like a really interesting way to use a slightly unusual protagonist, who is me again, mm. to explore those themes um, that I think we've all experienced because we're humans, even if you're not autistic, we're all still humans and we all still share those common themes. How different is it writing for the adult market in comparison to writing your geek girl? Do you just do bigger words? I'm just wondering. (laughs) Longer ones. ones. I don't know. Because I've never written for teenagers because I'm too scared for, because I think they would seek you out more, see you more easily because they're much less forgiving. I wonder whether writing for adults is possibly even easier, do you think, or not? It was easier for me, to be honest. I think, Mm. you know, I mean, one of the first things I did was swear a lot because I wasn't allowed to swear in my children's books. So I swore so much that my editor had to come in at the end and say, I think we need to remove one or two of these 224 F-bombs that you've put in here. (laughs) So I obviously got a bit carried away. Did you have to write about sex? That's an adult thing. I did. I got to. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I did. And I got to have fun Good. using the, the time loop and the time travel so that she does it again and again so, and again. <laughs> so, so, so all the F... That's a good idea. That's a very yeah, good yeah. idea. So yeah. all the F words that you weren't allowed to use, you put into this book. It's like you've yes. been storing them up. Excellent. Yeah. And, and I had the freedom because I could talk as me, you know. I mean, I don't use different words. I don't use a different way of writing. That is my style of writing anyway. But the themes and the emotions that I could use in adult books, you know, they were just slightly more current to me because I'm 41. So, you know, it felt like I was just kind of liberated a little bit, which so I enjoyed. So when you started writing, how did you come to it? Basically, I've been good at reading and writing since I was like two or three. So I knew I wanted to be a writer at four and I started making books at four. I started writing them, cutting out cardboard, sticking them together. And so that's what I worked towards basically, you know, every day since I was a little kid. And I just practiced storytelling and reading and and getting hold of anything I could, like poetry, plays, anything. It's just part of me and I love it. Mm. Like, I'm so lucky to do it. (laughs) When was your first book published? How old were you? 30. I had the goalpost for being published by the time I was 30 and I got the book deal just before my 31st birthday. (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Holly. That was fascinating. Amazing. I I haven't read The Cassandra Complex. I shall read it immediately. And uh, fantasise about what I would do if I could go back in time. It's not by a lottery ticket. Yes, I would. Honestly, really? I'm very How about world peace? No, I don't care about that. I'd buy a lottery ticket too if it helps. (laughs) (laughs) That was Holly Smale, whose latest book, The Cassandra Complex, is available now. We'll put a link in the show notes. When Kate Winslet won the Leading Actress BAFTA Award this week, she used her acceptance speech to highlight social media addiction and the mental health problems that it's causing our children. The film, I should just say, was about her daughter. It was actually her actual daughter, wasn't it? Was it was her Mia, actual daughter, Mia yes. Reepleton, and yeah. it was called I Am Ruth. It was really good. Yes. Actually. I watched it and it was about her daughter sort of disappearing into the sort of whole of social media mm. and being targeted online and bullied, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, our next guest is Laura Calhoun, a counsellor, physio- uh, not physiotherapist, psychotherapist. <laughs> oh, physiotherapist, always useful. And addiction <laughs> expert to talk about this issue. Now, I know a lot about social media addiction because... Well, obviously, I'm addicted to you it. You are addicted, But I, yes. my excuse is that I have to do it for my job, so I can't... You pretend it's work. I pretend it's work, yes. yes. it's not. <laughs> but my daughter was... I mean, not so much anymore. She's sort of come through it, actually. Mm. But now she's 20. But when she was much younger, when she was sort of 14, 15, she was obsessed with social media, and mm. in particular with having a big following. And the film, I Am Ruth, really resonated with me because it was about how 
you lose your child to this kind of bizarre world where all that matters is the number of followers you've got and how many likes you've got. And then someone says something awful and then your world collapses. And it's terrifying because it's the sort of bullying that you get at school, but sort of to the 920 million degree, isn't it? It's just the worst possible way. And also it follows you into your bedroom. At least when you're bullied at school, you know, you can sort of come in the the olden days, you know, when you were, when we were at school, you could sort of come home shut the door and just be in a bit of a safe space. Whereas now it follows you there. So Laura, tell us a bit about your point of view and how you deal with it. Well, I have a teenage daughter who's just coming up to 17. So I too have had a personal experience as well as a professional experience. When I watched I Am Ruth, I was really struck by the bit when she said she wanted to smash the phone. I've actually done that. (laughs) Yes, I've thrown phones before now. Yeah. And iPads. Mm. <laughs> so, I know. Uh, Fortunately, I haven't broken because they're quite expensive, but yes. This, this iPhone did break, thrown with such force, was it? So it's very difficult. You say, how, how do we deal with it as parents? There are two questions here. How do we deal with it as families, as friends? Mm. How do we deal with it as therapists? And how do we help the problem? Well, I think with hindsight, I think if I could go back to the beginning and... I think a lot of parents don't really understand. I mean, maybe that's less so now because obviously parents are getting yeah. younger, so they've got yeah. experience of social media mm. themselves. But I think a lot of parents don't really quite understand the degree to which it influences the way mm. children behave and also how quickly it sort of captures them mm. in, a, in a way that can be really quite insidious. Are you for banning phones before I mean, 16? My, my Is thing, that the idea? What do you I think, think that I would. I think I would as well. I mean, the problem is... The reason people get hooked so quickly to it is this little thing called dopamine. Dopamine is responsible Mm. for where it's your pleasure receptors in your brain. It releases a hormone called dopamine when you get something great. So, you know, this can have a quite drug-like quality and is highly addictive. So if you're very young, under 16, if you're a child or, or a teenager or even a young adult, you know, everybody emotionally develops at a different rate, don't they? And if you become addicted to dopamine, which is very easy to do, I mean, I don't know about you, but I check my phone all the time. I definitely check my phone too much. Mm-hmm. They're very difficult things to move away from. Limiting use mm. as parents, whilst you still have that sort of control over your child, I would say is advisable because they're too young to really understand the damage that it's doing. And dopamine feels great, gives you this hit. And then you're on this roller coaster of when you see something great. Why is it that the phone produces the dopamine response? How does that work? I think it was made to, wasn't it? Pleasure. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, was, uh, well yeah. actually, interestingly, there have been lots of studies about this. And the WHO, the World Health Organization, started doing studies into this in 2014. And, mm. you know, it's actually a fact that it is made to do that to you. They want you mm. to be hooked. They, yeah. they want you to be looking at it, listening to it. And it sends you little messages all the time, doesn't it? It sends you, pick me up, pick me up. I've got a thing here. Listen, here's a little message. Look, you've got a like. I mean, one of the first things one should do is turn all those notifications off mm. so that you only ever actually pick it up when you need to pick it up. Isn't the main problem with it that... Because it's completely unfiltered, the kind of information that children have access to 
is not really suitable for children. Mm. So they are on websites where they will see things that are, you know, really only suitable for adults. And they are being targeted as adults would be targeted. So there's no, there's no way of filtering anything because the internet is not filtered and because there are no barriers. I mean, I think it's the smartphone that's the problem, isn't it? Because Absolutely, it's that it's access the to the internet. You can't get away from it. And, you know, the platforms, yeah, and- as you said, are designed to be addictive. They are constructed that way. There's a 2020 paper done by Business Ethics Quantity Quarterly that discusses this, you know, how mm. these platforms are specifically designed to be addictive. And that was a paper that was written in 2020. So, you know, we've known yeah. so we're, for, yeah. for several years that yeah. they're addictive and we've known that they're designed that way. And what sort of things are you seeing in your counselling teenagers? What sort of behaviour are you seeing? Lots of addiction, lots of depression, lots of isolation, withdrawal, not doing so well at school, anxiety, you know, withdrawal from reality, maybe not engaging with their friends so much, you know, mm. absolute. Mm loneliness and then that can lead to other things like eating disorders self-harm substance abuse I mean the Mm. I am Ruth was so brilliant for this because it really showed what a child does or a young adult does in this situation Mm. it's that withdrawal into their bedrooms Mm. withdrawal into this this private little world that's away from reality and not wanting to engage with people in the real world and it's that paradox of being hyper-connected, mm. but not being connected to anyone at all. Yeah, exactly. it's You think that you've got lots of friends out there, but they're not your friends mm. because you've never actually met them. Mm. They're just people who are following you. Yeah. And I think it must be rewiring our sort of Absolutely. social synapses in a funny kind of a way. I mean, Absolutely. How- you know, people really want to have those likes. People really want to have those views on TikTok. You know, that's mm. the motivation is see me, look at me, here I am, this is me. But Mm. it's not real you. It's this image that you're presenting to the world. It's not authentic. So the whole basis of it isn't real. Mm. But also what happens is that because these people are not real, they can turn against you very easily. So that and that's the thing that really resonated with I Am Ruth was the idea of the fact that you can sort of build this group of followers you think that they're your friends and then you do one thing wrong mm. and they turn against you and they basically we're all sort of one it, tweet or one instagram yeah. away from yes. being ha- cancelled i mean it happens yeah. to my daughter over something that happened in the newspaper and it was absolutely horrendous i remember it was the worst thing that had ever happened to me as a mother because Suddenly, she was getting rape threats. She was getting death threats. She was being targeted by really awful people who had no idea who she was. They were just reading the internet and just piling on. And it was an absolute virtual beating. I mean, she was pummeled and it was really terrifying. And I have never felt so helpless as a mother because it's impossible to know what to do. And of course, what you need to do is to say to her, it's not real. These people are not real. They don't really exist. It doesn't matter what they think. Turn off the phone. But saying that to a teenager these days is like saying, well, you know, don't breathe for a few days. It's infiltrated our lives to such an extent. I mean, I really think it's a pernicious influence. And I think it it really has infiltrated our lives to such an extent that it's very difficult to tell them. And also they've grown up with it. I mean, they don't know any different. I mean, Imogen and I, obviously, we remember life before mobile phones. Uh, They don't. 
Imogen was saying earlier, actually, you know, now at school, everything is done on a mobile phone. There's no way away from it. So I think the thing is, we just have to learn to manage it as parents, mm. you know, to understand that it's there. And it's basically, it's like a very fast main road. We've mm. just got to teach them to cross yeah. it without getting La- killed. Laura, what would be your sort of five tips to help us get through this quagmire? Look, the most extreme thing to do is remove the app from the phone. But that is really extreme. That's probably the last place you go to before you've tried other things. I think a good place to start if you think your child, your teenager, your young adult or any other member of the family, if they, if you notice that they're showing the signs that they might be addicted to social media, so the depression, the anxiety, the withdrawal, constantly wanting to engage with it or getting upset when they can't, the first thing to do is have a conversation with them and ask them how much they're using it. Once you've established how much that is, there are actually notifications that you can turn off. You can ask them to remove all the people that they don't know from the app. That's mm-hmm. a really good place to start. Like you were just yeah, saying, you know, don't know do. these people. <laughs> remove all those people yes. you don't know. Leave the phone in another room, definitely out of the bedroom. That is a really difficult one to enforce, I find. If mm-hmm. I had a pound for every time a teenager said to me, well, how will I wake up? I don't have an alarm. I'm like, well, I'm, alarm clock. I know. I think get, buy them an alarm clock would also be helpful. Yeah. because yeah. And that's what I always get told too. It's I could awesome. really wake up if I don't have my phone. Yeah, yeah. Keep it out of the bedroom. You can actually, um, rather sort of ridiculously, you can actually download another app that can limit the time. Mm. So there are lots of boundaries like that that you can do at home. And the final thing is remove the app from the phone. Um, limit really strictly limit time and then if none of that works then really you probably need to get your child to talk to a professional I mean I think what you should you know when they get to about the age of 16 17 it's fine they learn to sort of control it by themselves a little bit I think the really dangerous time for me is sort of 11 to 14 that's when they're really young but they're all getting these phones and I think that is when you really need to get on top of it, mm. not later on down the line, because quite a lot of parents don't quite realise how bad it's getting until it's got mm. too bad. Well, there was somebody I heard the other day who said, well, they're the first generation who has access to everything. Yeah. But then they're also the first generation that everything has access to them. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's frightening, is yeah. that what you think they're going, it's, it's a one-way street, yeah. but it's not. It's entirely yeah. the I other way. I think what you should do, I think what everyone should do is have a safe in the sitting room and then all the phones go in it after 6pm and that's the end of it yes done (laughs) job done until they're old enough to sort of deal with it all yes and then Uh, you can have your burner phone in your bedroom so you can still do your your Instagram Sarah well they could always have a landline (laughs) I think it's a mistake to think that they're safe after 16 well they're safer is what I mean I mean, I think they're really vulnerable when they're sort of 11, 12, 13, My 14. My son's age at the moment, yeah. yes. He's contending with the rapacious Andrew Tate. Yes, I mean, her, her son is oh, 11. Oh, yes, yeah. Andrew Tate. Yeah, so, yeah, I know all about you know, it. And what he's going to be seeing at 11 is Andrew not stuff Tate. he should be seeing. Andrew Tate. He should not be seeing that yeah. stuff. It's all about Andrew Tate. Yeah. What you haven't, actually, it's not just things like Andrew Tate. It's also porn. You know, they have quite a lot of access yes. to pornography at quite yes. a young age. And that really does damage your neural pathways. So... There's a lot yes. of negative. You're now to Sarah's negative. pet subject. This is my pet subject. Don't get me started <laughs> oh, on this. Yeah. Drives basically, me mad. That, drives me mad. So basically they're evil things and they should be yeah. uninvented yes. immediately. Yes. 
if we could build, <laughs> if only, we could build yeah. a time machine. And then the problem is, yeah. you know, how do you then build responsible use? Because we all use them yeah. for work, education. We, they're, they're so part of our lives. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. You know, the younger the child, the harder for them really to understand the damage that's being done. I mean, at least with somebody slightly older, they have seen things on TV, mm. maybe like I Am Ruth, which I think should be mm. required watching for all teenagers. I think they should put it in schools, uh, that's actually. That's a very good yeah. idea. Yeah. There you go. I think yeah. it should be part of the PSHE programme when they're watched in schools. Yes. Thank you, Laura. We've got to go. We've run out of time, but thank you so much. Thank and you. Thanks for joining us. And yes, we'll, we'll, we'll all Pleasure. fight the battle. Yes, we will. That was Laurel Calhoun, counsellor and psychotherapist and addiction expert. We'll put a link to her website in the show notes. If you enjoy listening to The Half Hour, why not visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at mailplus, me at Westminster Wag or Imogen. Uh, well, you can't tweet her because mm. um, you still haven't got a Twitter thing. No. Have you spoken to Elon yet? No. Has he replied to any no. of us? No. So, I don't know. I have been banned <laughs> from Twitter for no reason. No. I didn't do anything. No. Why no. were you banned? Sitting quietly on my own. I just, I, it was hacked, taken over. I've written, I've written. Who's who took it over? I don't know. Some man who wanted to sell something. Okay, fine. Yeah. We'll just have to keep emailing Ian on then. Mm. You for listening to The Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine and Imogen Edwards-Jones. Thank you for listening. Oh. 